Well, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. This is the podcast that translates Donald Trump. We take a look at the current administration. We address the existential threats to America. With that in mind, let me remind everyone in case you forgot, uh, 9-11 is uh, the day in which we're recording this. 19 years ago was the terrorist attack, slaughter. I prefer to call it a slaughter than a tragedy. Of course, it was tragic, the deaths of people. But we have to remember this was an attack. A tragedy can be a flood or a lightning storm. But this was a slaughter planned by human beings that killed human beings. Bad human beings planned it, and good people died. We're going to talk about it some. I'll give you my thoughts, memories. Claude will give us his. Were you born 9-11? <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. I was born out of high school uh, in the workforce and paying through college. But we'll talk, I guess, a little bit about that later. Joining me today, we'll ask them for their uh, memories as well. Uh, Byron York, columnist at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. And we'll talk about his new book, Obsession, Inside the Washington Establishment's Never-Ending War on Donald Trump. And today we'll hear from John Cribb, a very close friend of mine, worked with me on the Book of Virtues and other projects. He's the author of a great new book, Old Abe, a novel, historical novel based on uh, facts, conversations that uh, were easily reconstructed from people's memories, and a wonderful, wonderful read. Uh, let me talk about a couple of things. Claude, 9-11. Uh, we're recording on 9-11 and um, 2020. 9-11-2001. Where were you? What are your memories? You know, first of all, it's, it's amazing that it's 19 years ago. You know, seems like it was no later than 5 or 10 uh, for me. So I was um, working in a records department at a law firm, uh, Howie and Simon. Uh, and I was, um, you know, just a records clerk working my way through college, uh, fresh out of high school. Uh, first two jobs was uh, McDonald's and a shoe store, downtown locker room. But I got this job. And so I'm there working in the law firm, just filing records and pulling up files as needed by lawyers and partners. And um, I just remember there being a commotion in the um, uh, uh, area where I work and everyone going to the conference room to watch uh, what was going on in the news. I don't remember whether it was the, the Today Show or Good Morning America. I don't remember we were watching it in the conference room, and, we, and, and it was after the first plane hit. And we're thinking, wow, what a, you know, what a big mistake. Uh, you know, uh, some independent uh, two-engine jet flew into the World Trade you know, one of the buildings, and, man, that's crazy. Uh, and then as we're watching it, a second one flies in. And you're thinking, am I watching a replay, or is this – you know, is this something else that's happened? Is this a second one? And then once we realized, oh, this is a second one, uh, we knew that it was uh, serious. A lot of the folks who were there at that law firm or some of the lawyers and, and secretaries, they were from New York. They're calling family members. They're calling uh, friends, the people that they know. Everyone's on the phone. No one can get through to anybody. Um, and immediately they just said, hey, we're shutting the office down. Um, everybody get home as fast as you can, get there safe. This seems to be, you know, a terrorist attack. And at the time, you're just wondering, terrorist attack, you know, like, what's that? You know, uh, what do you mean terrorist attack? What do we do? Who, who, who are the terrorists? What's happening? Um, but you get home, you know, we called everyone around to make sure that everybody was safe, what's happening, what's going on, and you just watched the news, and you just watched and watched and watched. Yeah. I was uh, in Washington working for Empower America, 17th Street and Pennsylvania Avenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was uh, doing an interview a couple blocks away, scheduled for an interview, and was watching on TV as the first uh, tower was hit. Remember, the first report was that people thought it was a uh, small plane. Uh, some mm-hmm. pilot had gone awry. 
amazing the scale. It was a you know it was a regular you know airliner. I can't remember what it was, DC three or whatever it was, but it was a big plane. And so I went back to my office at Empower America, 17th Pennsylvania, and I was there and saw people, staff, Jack Kemp and other people. And we were just catty corner from the White House. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, people said, come here. We had this great uh, window. We could see everything. And there was smoke coming from across the river. Pentagon had been hit. And then uh, looking at the White House, all of a sudden, a flood of people just coming out of the White House gates just running. Hmm. We knew that it was very serious, very serious trouble. And then we, you know, watched the news and figured out what was happening. Um, a lot of my memories just personal. Um, mm-hmm. I remember thought about my wife and kids. Uh, Mrs. Bennett was at her office, the best friend's office. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I took the subway up there and then finally got a car, taxi or something, and picked her up at her office to get her home. Thought was our, to our kids. John, our older son, was at high school there in, in D.C., in, in Maryland, mm-hmm. and uh, they let them out, and he came home. Our younger son, and this was very nervous-making, was at a camp in Pennsylvania, about 30 oh. or 40 miles from Shanksville. Mm-hmm. We, you know, I didn't know where Shanksville was, but so right. that was a panic for a while. But um, uh, he, he, he was fine. He was safe. And then, you know, just, just watching and watching and watching and reading and reading. And, and I had my boys there and we talked. So let's see, John was, uh, was 19 years ago. He was uh, 16, 17. Mm-hmm. And uh, my younger son was 12. And we just talked and I tried to explain. And I just kept taking it in. And just it was incredible. Just an incredible, incredible time. Um, we knew a lot of people at the Pentagon. One of John's uh, classmates, my older son's classmate's teammate, his uh, aunt was a uh, flight attendant on the flight that went into the Pentagon. Mm. Seven, right? And then um, other people we knew through, you know, other other connections. But um, I've written about it. I uh, talked about it, wrote about it in the, my, my America Last Best Hope series. And, um, you know, it should never be forgotten. Uh, you know, there were some people who made real efforts to – Keep showing, keep from showing the footage, and um, they should not do that. They should show the footage. We should be reminded of this, lest we forget. You know, lest we forget. But um, go ahead. The word "unprecedented" is used a lot in 2020, and I and I and I get why, and I and I get folks doing it. I mean, they're trying to describe what what's going on in the country right now. But at the time, I mean, this truly unprecedented. I mean, an attack on America on U.S. soil of this magnitude, unprecedented. And you didn't know what it meant, you know, but you did know after we were consuming it, at least it felt to me that things were going to be different. You know, um, uh, life was different. Things were going to change, that there was a real threat to the country that were intentionally, they were intentionally trying to bring it to U.S. soil and that we had to be more vigilant than we were before. And we had to be more serious than we were before. Um, and maybe even more importantly, we had to be more unified than we were before. Um, you know, the days afterwards, we had to put aside certain things and say, as Americans, as America, there were some things we had to put aside. There were some things we had to just wait on, uh, but we had to handle this together first. No question, no question. And the country was united. I remember tons of flags were bought. Um, people signed up for, went down in military offices and signed up for military service. People became first responders, 
It's an extraordinary time. We'll get the memories of our two guests as well. And uh, we welcome your thoughts. Uh, it'll be a week later, but that's fine. Write us. How do people write us? Where do they write us? So they can just send an email to BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Right. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. And here is Byron York. Byron, we are um, doing this interview, recording this uh, interview, this podcast uh, on 9-11. Give us uh, your memory, your recall of where you were, what you were doing, what you thought. Well, I was uh, at home in Washington, and uh, that was at a time in which we uh, did not wake up and check Twitter and social media and everything like that. And I um, really, I, I didn't turn on a television. And so I didn't know what was happening. And actually, as it happened, I called a friend in London and his secretary said to me, well, it looks like something has happened in New York. Uh, and at that point, I turned on television and found out what was going on. And the interesting thing is um, Mrs. York was uh, working in Northern Virginia at that time. And I was working at home and um, I really had no sort of sense of what it would be like there. And I took her to work and uh, we got in the world's worst traffic jam. It was like War of the Worlds where, where yeah. cars are just trying to escape, you know, the, um, and as we crossed the Memorial Bridge, you could see, you know, the black smoke coming from the Pentagon. Yeah. Um, and as I remember, we were listening to the radio and, um, I think it must have been a simulcast with Peter Jennings on television. And a reporter said to him that um, one of the towers had just collapsed. And Jennings corrected him and said, you mean part of the tower has fallen off or something? And they said, no, it collapsed. Yeah. And um, so everybody was just in um, uh, stunned, incredibly stunned and, um, a little later in the day, uh, we found out that uh, our friend Barbara Olson had been on the right. plane. Uh, right. my, the, my neighbor right in back of me uh, was sitting on the front porch um, with just what you would call like a thousand yard stare. Um, and his wife had been on the plane. So yeah. um, so it was um, it was a day that changed everything. Yeah. Yeah. Barbara Olson, a friend of ours as well. And Ted, the very, very well-known for good reason, lawyer in Washington, who's uh, you know been involved in a lot of cases. And I remember she called him from the, from the plane. Yeah. It was very sad, a very sad story. I, I just, I, I mentioned earlier also on that plane where one of the flight attendants was uh, someone who was a friend of ours and aunt of uh, one of my son's classmates. And a bunch of kids whom Mrs. Bennett had uh, sponsored to go to San Diego, part of her best friends program. And one of the little boys, sixth grade, had never been on a plane before. And the night before, he cried all night. He didn't want to get on a plane because it was something terrible would happen. And, of course, his parents reassured him. And, you know, these are the particulars one takes out. You know, you talked about your your, your neighbor with the, with the thousand-yard stare. And you remember the traffic jam. And I just, just these incidents that it's how we remember these large things by the particulars. We give a, Shakespeare would say, a, give abstraction a local habitation and a name. And then I, I remember watching the planes. The first thing I saw was a plane going in. And the first news report was that this was a small private plane going yeah. into the tower. You remember this? And, and then well, we people, saw it later. People didn't know. Scale. Yeah. Then that was said scale. 
if, if, if a plane makes a scar across one entire face of one of the World Trade Center towers, that's huge. And uh, But people didn't, you're right, there were early reports that it was a small plane. Um, and it, it was, of course, difficult to find out what was happening uh, at that time. And as it would be today, I mean, we have many more sources of information, but there would be just as much confusion and misinformation if something like that were to happen uh, today. But I, I remember... Uh, you know, we had planned actually to travel to Europe uh, a few days after that, not yeah. of course. And there was this period of time in which nobody wanted to do anything. I mean, there was a lot of work to do and just in terms of journalism, uh, writing about what the Bush administration was going to do. Um, and um, by the way, I remember, you know, one of the, the things about George W. Bush is that he did not respond instantly you know he, he didn't like send the bombers over there you know three yeah. hours later. Yeah. Uh, he planned this um the invasion of afghanistan and um i was down with relatives in uh hampton virginia and i remember very clearly one night right before this started uh and you know they had these giant c5a transport planes down there uh which were taking things to Afghanistan, and you could just hear all through the night there were teacups rattling in the house because these uh, these big planes were rolling off uh, through the night, headed to the other side of the planet. Um, it was um, yeah, you know, a long time before anybody felt normal again. That is right. That is right. Um, yeah, I, I, you, you're talking about Washington decisions. You remember, you probably know more about it than I do, but. Um, decisions that had to be made that apparently there was a lot of question about what, where they should take the president and the air force one, where it was safe to go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dick Cheney apparently was suggesting that authorizing or suggesting if we found another commercial airliner that had been hijacked, that maybe our jets ought to take it down. You remember all this stuff? Oh yeah. yeah. Amazing stuff. The thing I will never forget though. And then it was a picture in the, I think Esquire magazine of the people jumping out of the building. Uh, I just, that's etched forever. Uh, it's hard. To, it's hard to look at that now. That's uh, very hard. Very hard. But we have to, we should, I think, I mean, not necessarily the people jumping out, but I think we should see the pictures of these planes going into these buildings. I'm so worried in general terms about state of American history and what we're teaching kids, you know, yeah. most of which is lousy. And we need to remember this, you know, lest we forget. Well, you know, I remember doing a story, and I can't remember the date, um, but it became clear that the networks were no longer using, the television networks were no longer using video right. of planes hitting the buildings. Right. And uh, there was this feeling that they had overused it in the first few days, which yeah. they did because, I mean, they overuse everything, and just, it was, it was, what word, it was the most dramatic video ever. Yeah. Uh, so they overused it. Uh, but instead of just dialing it back, uh, they essentially put a ban. And if you were a yeah. producer at a network, you had to get big time executive approval to do really, it. really. And, uh, my sense was, and this was long enough after September 11th years, uh, to think that that was the wrong policy. That I, agree. I agree with you. Agree. Um, you know, it should give you a sense of horror when you see that. 
And you shouldn't forget that sense of horror. And people who had never seen it before should know what happened. Yeah. So um, uh, I, I think that policy eventually kind of went away. And, and uh, I haven't checked coverage today. Yeah. Hopefully they, they will show what happened. They did. They did on Fox uh, this morning. I know I was watching. Anyway, they they did. I don't know if the other networks did. Um, let's talk about your book <laughs> called Obsession. It Sounds like the right one word title for this I'll book. Here. There it is. Perfect. There it is. Obsession. What is the obsession and when did it really start? Okay. Um, the reason I wrote the book, um, go back to December of 2019, which amazingly enough, is not even a year ago. Uh, Democrats were racing, rushing to impeach President Trump by Christmas. And a reporter asked Nancy Pelosi, what's the, what's the rush? What's the hurry here? And she said, there's no rush. This has been going on for two and a half years since Mueller. And I don't think any Democrats really noticed what she said, but a lot of Republicans took note of what she said. They went, wow, she has finally said it out loud. This impeachment, it's not about Ukraine. I mean, it's not about a phone call. This is a continuation of a long effort to remove President Trump from office. So I kind of used Pelosi's words as a frame for the book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, starts with the origins of the Mueller investigation, basically with the president's uh, relations with James Comey. And then it goes through Mueller, which makes up maybe half or even a little more of the book. And then it, it goes into how Mueller just morphs into Ukraine and, and becomes uh, impeachment and ends, of course, with the, uh, the acquittal. Uh, you could argue that it starts long before that. Um, and we have had books on uh, the FBI's Operation uh, Crossfire Hurricane and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I thought what, what was interesting was I'm almost looking at the institutional effort to remove Trump from office. Okay. And there are two parts of it. There's an investigation part of it and a congressional part of it. Let me press you on the beginnings. When did it begin in the sense of, because we've all heard this stuff about we got to get an insurance policy. Was it because Democrats feared that Trump might win and they already hated him? Or was it when the realization came that he was winning? Uh, or well, was it mainly kicked off after he won? I believe that during the campaign, the, there, there certainly was an FBI investigation into Trump. Crossfire Hurricane formally begins July 31, 2016. Um, the, in, in one of the most disgraceful episodes ever, I think, uh, they set about to hire Christopher Steele to do his, quote, investigation into Trump and Russia and to do it for pay for the FBI. Who's, the, who's, a, who's a they? The FBI? Yeah, he's going to hire Steele. They, they agree to hire him. Uh, he brings them these, these things that we now know as the dossier, and they say, this is great. We'd, we'd put you on the payroll. Let's get more. It's unbelievable. Uh, and it was all, you know, BS. And um, the only reason the, the deal falls apart is, it because, is because Steele talks to the press. And um, it's, that's against the policy for, a, for an FBI source to do that. Yeah. But, of course, Steele... The press was the only reason to be doing it. He desperately tried to get the uh, dossier, quote, revelations into the press before the election. The whole idea was get it out before the election so Trump won't be elected. So they were doing stuff during the campaign. But I think I, I think it really 
they thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, just like everybody else in the establishment thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. So I think that even as as awful as what, what they were doing was, it really didn't kick into high gear until after the election. And you see the uh, the investigation into Flynn, Michael Flynn, the pretext to interview him in the White House, and the um, the you know the beginnings of the Mueller investigation. You see uh, James Comey, uh, yeah, yeah, so, uh, yeah, briefing the president on the dossier on January the seventh. So I think that's when it really kicks off. Okay, yeah. So that, again, just before the inauguration, because it's a big part of your book. The book is Obsession. Uh, Byron York is the author. Uh, long before the inauguration, people around Donald Trump were urging him to get rid of Comey. Absolutely. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, Chris Christie, uh, Jeff Sessions, uh, a lot of people were, were advising him that he should um, – Fire Comey. This was, I mean, I knew about this at the time. I mean, there were people who basically wanted Trump to take the oath of office, step down, fire Comey, and step back up and deliver his speech. I mean, do it really quick. And um, they were, they all thought that Comey was uh, erratic, uh, a loose cannon, self righteous, headstrong, and it was just not somebody they wanted as director of the FBI. They saw all of those. Uh, attributes in his handling of the Hillary Clinton email case. Now, it's important to remember they were not doing this because they were offended on behalf of Hillary Clinton or they thought, oh, Comey was so mean to Hillary. They thought, uh, as Chris Christie said, this guy is a loose cannon. And if you keep him after your president, he's going to be your loose cannon. And uh, so the question was, why didn't Trump take their advice? I mean, Rudy Giuliani said, look, he's going to turn on you. There's something wrong with this guy. Um, but Trump didn't take their advice. And apparently Trump thought that he could win Comey over. You know, yeah. Trump brought to the White House habits of mind that he brought from decades in business. And he always believed that he could win people over. He could bring them around through the sheer force of his personality. Yeah. He could, he could, he could bring somebody around and he thought he could win Comey over in retrospect. It didn't work. Yeah. Uh, he may have also thought he could win Bob Woodward over, huh? I, you he, know, I, I've, I've been telling this, this story in relation to the Woodward thing, because I think it explains why he didn't fire Comey and it could well explain why he talked to Bob Woodward for, uh, 18 times as he thought he could win him over. Yeah. You see that uh, video seen a million times of Comey crossing the room, president motioning him to come and patting him on the shoulder. And so, and you can, you can see what's going on in Trump's brain, you know, try to win this guy over. Right. Well, the people who told him to fire him in terms of the president's own interests were correct. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think you could probably make the argument that Trump's two biggest mistakes early on were not firing Comey in January of 2017 and then firing Comey in May of 2017. Uh, Because, I mean, Christie had said, if you keep him and then he does some investigation and then you fire him and it's going to look like you fired him to uh, stifle the investigation. And if that didn't happen. 
Yeah, and that uh, turned out to be uh, wise advice as well. Um, we know what happened. Uh, the book is Obsession. Uh, I want to do it through the characters, a lot of the characters, the leading actors in this drama. I, I found particularly fascinating because I didn't know a lot of this. The the Mueller, John Dowd, who was the president's lawyer, yeah. um, a drama or uh, confrontations or scenes. Tell us about that. I had no idea of that. I know John Dowd. I know him pretty well. He's a very close friend of my brother's, Bob Bennett. And I've been in a lot of social events with him, seen him a lot around the Palm and other places. Well, John, John Dowd uh, is a, what they call a veteran lawyer is in his seventies. Yeah. Um, he had uh, done some big cases. He defended John McCain in the, um, Oh gosh, what was that case called? The, the, the Keating Five case. Keating Five, right? And uh, he also uh, conducted. Uh, this was not a legal prosecution, but he conducted for Major League Baseball. He conducted the P. Rose investigation. That's right. That's right. Being banned uh, for life uh, for gambling on baseball. So Dowd had had quite a career, um, and uh, you know Trump was absolutely stunned by the appointment of Mueller. He was, he, he was blindsided by it. He was angry about it, uh, but he needed a lawyer. Um, and um, he got to Dowd. Another thing about Dowd is he's a former Marine. And uh, Robert Mueller is also a former Marine. That's right. And there was this belief, and, and Dowd and Mueller knew each other. Uh, they were not close friends, but they knew each other. Um, and uh, knew of each other as well. And so there was this belief that Dowd could communicate with Mueller kind of Marine to Marine. Uh, They're both about the same age. Mueller was in in his seventies as well. And so what happens when this, when this starts, uh, Trump is putting together a legal team and he wants this investigation to be over immediately. I mean, he wants it to be really fast. This is almost like, I make the point in the preface, it's almost like the Civil War where at the beginning they think it's going to be short yeah, uh, and it'll be settled quickly. Um, he wants this over fast. So he and, and Dowd, is, Dowd is really the father of this idea. And, and you'll find lawyers who criticize it, but I think it was pretty brilliant. Um, Trump essentially offered radical cooperation with Mueller. Uh, there was a meeting in June of 2017. Mueller had been in office for all of three or four weeks, very early on, probably still organizing and, you know, buying office furniture. Um, and Dowd goes to Mueller with this uh, proposal. And the proposal is, I, Donald Trump, want this investigation to be over very, very quickly. You, special counsel Mueller, are going to want access to hundreds of thousands of documents from the White House uh, you're going to want to interview all sorts of people. And most of that is going to be covered by executive privilege. And as president, I could object and take you to court, and this would be, it would take forever. Now, here's my proposal. I'll give you everything you want, all the documents you want. You can talk to anybody you want for as long as you want. But in return, you'll agree to get this over quickly. And Mueller famously said, I don't let any grass grow under me, which was taken to mean, yes, yeah. I'll do it quickly. Yeah. And the, the two, uh, Dowd and Mueller, uh, make a handshake deal. They shake hands. This was never written down. It was never signed. They shake hands, and that's the deal. And what happens in the course of this is 
Mueller then immediately begins uh, investigating, searching for collusion. He, uh, I mean, that's actually his, that's his big assignment, right, is to, to try to establish that the Trump campaign and Russia conspired to fix the 2016 election. So he, he looks in all the places you would think that he'd look. He looked at George Papadopoulos and Carter Page and the Trump Tower meeting in that wacky episode at the Republican convention that he investigated as if it were serious. And by the fall, Dowd and the, uh, the rest of the Trump team can see that Mueller's got nothing. He's, he's not coming up with collusion. So there's a meeting on December 21st of 2017. So just before Christmas, Mueller has been at it for maybe six months. And the Trump people go and say, look, we've, up, we've held our end of the deal. Uh, we've given you everything. You haven't found collusion. It's time to wrap it up. And uh, the Mueller- when, when, are, when are we now? When, calendar? December 2017, six okay. months after the investigation. Okay, okay. And uh, the Mueller team says, well, no, it's not time to wrap it up. Uh, we're going to be looking into allegations of obstruction. And for that, we need to talk to the president. Now, the defense team always knew that, that Mueller was going to, at some point, want to talk to the president. Uh, but they felt that having failed to find uh, collusion and having had this extraordinary uh, cooperation, they pretty much done their part, and it was time for Mueller to wrap up. So the meeting ends badly. Uh, Mueller does not wrap up. In the next couple of months, they go back and forth with um, Mueller trying to, to make a deal for Trump to testify, and the Trump people arguing that Trump's not going to testify. And then the big one was on March the 5th of 2018. Okay, so Trump, uh, Mueller has been at it for about nine months. Um, they have a meeting, and the uh, Trump lawyers are saying, look, there's no reason for you to um, question the president. And this is where the whole the radical cooperation thing comes in. It says, we gave you everything. We let you talk to people. You've talked to the, the White House counsel, for goodness sakes, for 30 hours. I mean, nobody in a previous White House could even believe that Trump authorized his White House counsel to be yeah. you know, questioned by prosecutors. Yeah. And it went on for 30 hours. So we've given you everything, and we've given you documents that give you a contemporaneous look at what the president was saying. There was a woman named Annie Donaldson who was uh, uh, Don McGahn, the White House counsel's chief of staff. She took extensive notes on meetings that McGahn was in uh, and that, that Trump was in and McGahn would come and do kind of a, uh, a data dump afterwards. And she would take notes on everything that had happened at the time. These were highly confidential documents and it, it would take you hours to read them. There's a lot of paper. They handed them over. They gave yeah. them Mueller. So at this meeting, uh, Dowd is saying, we gave you everything. You didn't find anything. You have no. You couldn't find the, an underlying crime. There's no reason to question the president. And Mueller says, "Well, maybe we'll have to issue a subpoena." So at that point, Dowd slams his hand down on the table and says, "You do that, you're going to get a war, and you're going to lose that war." 
you know, and it was like a TV show. <laughs> They're yelling yeah. at each other. Yeah. And then, you know, there's these two old bull Marines kind of going at each yeah. other. And, um, and Dowd told me, he said, oh, you know, I, I, I lost respect uh, for Mueller as a man and as a Marine uh, because he didn't keep his word. Yeah. The Trump team felt like they had made a proposal in good faith. They kept their end of the bargain and Mueller did not keep his end of the bargain. You think that's a fair assessment? His assessment? Much. I mean, you can say that, that, you know, when I say he handed over, Trump handed over everything, all the documents, all the testimony. Well, the one thing he didn't hand over was himself. Yeah. Um, but I do think there are precedents involved in, in allowing the president himself to be questioned uh, about this, especially without an underlying crime. And there was, there is a, a ruling. It's not a Supreme court ruling. It's a uh, DC circuit court ruling called ESPY. And it relates to Mike Espy, who was uh, Bill Clinton's yeah. secretary of agriculture. Yeah. Remember there were just, he, and he had an independent counsel investigating him. And remember pretty much everybody in the Clinton administration had one. Um, and basically it said, as far as interviewing the president is concerned, you have to show that it's really important. There's a big reason and you can't get that information anywhere else. And because of the radical cooperation agreement, they had given Mueller all this stuff and they could say, I think in good faith, look, we gave you all this stuff. We gave you Annie Donaldson's notes. We gave yeah. you a yeah. window into what the president was thinking and saying at any given moment in this period. And by the way, it would probably be more accurate than whatever the president's memory of it is right now. Yeah. Um, so they, they said, you, you know, you just don't have a case. And I think, I think they were proved right by the fact that Mueller never tried to force the issue. Yeah, no, you're right. It's fascinating, though. It's a fascinating part of the book, and I did not know uh, a lot of this. It's uh, it's worth uh, taking a look at for that reason only, but for other reasons as well. All right, we've talked about Comey. We've talked here about Mueller and Dowd. I want to move ahead in time and talk about the Ukraine thing and what may be, you tell me if I read this right, the central role played by uh, Colonel Vindman. Yeah. Well, let's set up the Ukraine thing a little bit. Um, Democrats win control of the House in 2018, and they do it by not talking about impeachment in public and planning for impeachment in private. Because the number of uh, uh, one, one of the kind of recurring characters in this is uh, Representative Al Green, uh, a Democrat from Texas, who is the most persistent advocate for impeachment. He, he wants to, you know, when, when uh, Trump went after Colin Kaepernick uh, for not standing the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, Al Green wanted to impeach him for that. Okay. So, you know, Al Green was up for impeachment. You know, he just needed more reasons. So um, Pelosi, they win, they win the House in 2018, and they immediately began planning. And the whole plan is to wait for Mueller. Uh, because uh, I discuss early on in the book, there has grown up in Washington this kind of symbiotic relationship between special counsels and the House of Representatives, because the special counsel has law enforcement powers of investigation uh, that the House doesn't have, uh, but the special counsel cannot indict a sitting president. And the House doesn't have those law enforcement powers, but it has the constitutional power to remove the president through impeachment. So if you remember back to the famous Morrison versus Olson case, which um, in which the Supreme Court 
uh, affirmed the independent counsel law, there was one dissent, and it was from Antonin Scalia, and he said it was acrid with the smell of threatened impeachment uh, because you could, you could appoint an independent counsel and he would use law enforcement powers, create a report, a roadmap, give it to Congress, and then they would impeach him. Yeah, uh, there you go. And, and it turned out totally, it worked exactly like that in the Clinton case. That's, yeah, very interesting. So here it is again. So they're waiting for Mueller. Because they believe that Mueller is going to, uh, like Stone Tablets, is going to give them all the secrets and the whole case against Trump, and then they will then impeach him. So what happens is in April of 2019, the Mueller report comes out, and um, it's a bit of a dud. He failed to establish that collusion took place. Uh, and, you know, some Democrats would argue that, no, well, he really did show collusion. He had all this evidence, and he had an unreasonable standard or whatever. But the fact is, the report said on a number of places, we could not establish that this took place, much less who might have taken part in it. So um, there's a lot of evidence on the issue of obstruction, which Mueller did not reach a conclusion about. So this is a very unsatisfying report. And a lot of Republicans think that that's going to be the end of it for Democrats. Right. It, it right. was the end of it. It was not. Uh, they thought, well... What we need now is some drama. We need a Watergate-style hearing in which Robert Mueller comes to the House and he stands yeah. up, delivers a damning indictment of President Trump, and that after that, all Americans will be in favor of removing Trump from office. And then uh, Mueller testifies on July 24th, 2019. It's a disaster. Uh, but what's striking about it? A lot of Republicans think that's got to be the end of it. This is this is the absolute end. Thank God this long Russia ordeal is over. Let's take a vacation. And actually, some of the Trump team people left on vacation, and some Democrat House Republicans uh, just let their guard down and relax. Um, what they didn't know was at that very moment, um, Adam Schiff uh, was working and um, nurturing a whistleblower complaint uh, against the president of the United States that would eventually result in the, in the Ukraine matter and his impeachment. Um, and there, there's this, there's this meeting in early September of 2019, Congress has been on break and the, the intelligence community comes, uh, intelligence committee comes back to Washington and Adam Schiff is the chairman. And, um, Chris Stewart, who is one of the members, a Republican member, who actually kept a diary of this and very generously let me see it. Uh, he said, um, you know, there was something about Schiff in that meeting. He mentioned a whistleblower. We had no idea what it was. And I don't want to say he was giddy, but he was so anticipating that we really suspected something was up. Yeah. And that's, that's the whistleblower story. And beyond that is, is Venman. Byron. Okay. Uh, more characters in your book, your great book, uh, obsession. You've already mentioned Adam Schiff, Nancy Pelosi, um, Nat Chairman Nadler, Jerry Nadler. You mentioned Green, Congressman Green, all major players. Who's who's the major engine behind this? Is there well, one person pushing more than others? More person, more important. Well, opinions for, more important for various reasons. Uh, obviously, Trump is the central figure. I think uh, Schiff is the central driver uh, of impeachment in the um, in the House. But the Venman story is really critical. I'm not saying he drove the whole thing, but he was essentially the start 
of the uh, of the Ukraine investigation, and this is what Republicans came to believe. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman was uh, on the White House um, National Security Council, uh, the Ukraine expert, and he listened to the um, Trump Zelensky phone call on July 25th. And there were a lot of people on the call, listening, staff listening to the call. And Vindman was the only one who felt there was something wrong about what had taken place on the call. And he was later questioned in both the secret depositions and the public testimony. Well, what did you think was wrong? And he, and he didn't really know, but he thought that um, the president had done something wrong. It was a bad idea and that it would reduce Ukraine's bipartisan support on Capitol Hill. So uh, Republicans asked Venman, uh, who outside the White House did you tell about this? And he said, I told two people. Okay, who are they? Well, one of them, I told George Kent. And Kent was a State Department official right, right. Uh, dealing with Ukraine. He actually testified in the hearings. Okay, who was the other one? Well, he was in the uh, intelligence community. And, and that is when Democrats jumped in to stop uh, Venman from naming who he talked to. He said, they, they said, you absolutely cannot ever, ever reveal the name of the other person that you told about this. It cannot ever be revealed. And Republicans are taken aback and they say, well, wait a minute, what's, what's going on? Why, why can't he say who he talked yeah, to? Yeah, why can't he? And Schiff said, because it would identify the whistleblower. Um, and Schiff, who had you know, earlier wanted the testimony of the whistleblower, later didn't want anybody to see or know who he was. Republicans thought to themselves, why are they taking this position? And they felt that it did not take a rocket scientist to conclude that the person uh, Venman had told about this, the unnamed person, was the person who became the whistleblower. So they really viewed Venman. Uh, he, he's not the actual whistleblower. That's a, a separate person. But they viewed Venman as the, as the source that, that sort of sets the spark for the whole thing to happen because he was the only one listening on the call who felt there was something wrong with the call. Um, and Democrats okay. were just willing to throw their body in front of, of Republicans to stop them from learning who Venman told about it. Got it. This, I, I want to close with two, two questions about obsession. This obsession of the Democrats to bring down Trump, to drive him out of office, to impeach him, is it rational or irrational? What parts of each? Do they have some good reason to want to do this in a self-interested way? Or is it just, you know, as we call it, derangement syndrome? Well, I, that's a great question. And I, I do think irrationality is a significant component of this. But when you look at the opposition to Trump that has built up since 2015, when he first entered the presidential race, um, some of it is quite rational. I mean, obviously, Democrats are going to oppose a Republican president. Um, there were a number of Republicans. Uh, it's a small number, but they're vocal, uh, who became never Trumpers, who I think uh, stood to suffer a loss of influence in the Republican world if Trump were to yeah. win. Um, there were people who just genuinely opposed him. And so there was, I mean, there was plenty of opposition. Um, but it all, um, but there was, 
but there was an extra dimension to it. One of the stories I tell actually is, is from January the 6th of 2017. Trump is president-elect. He's not inaugurated yet. But that's the day that Congress meets to certify the results of the Electoral College. And it's a ceremony. It's, it's supposed to be just kind of a happy ceremony in which somebody stands up and says, you know, the great state of Arkansas's delegates are found to be in ordered and certified and go for Donald right, J. Right. And, you know, there were members, Republican members, who told me that in 2009, they went to the ceremony for Obama's Electoral College victory because they just thought it was historic and wanted to watch. Well, in this one, uh, Republicans were stunned to see some Democrats stand up and try to stop the certification of electoral results from several states yeah. on the grounds that Russia had helped Trump. Yeah. Election. And I think at that moment, they thought, wow, there's something beyond just opposition going on here. There's something beyond just being angry and frustrated at having lost an election they thought they were going to win. Um, so I do think there's a, an emotional component that never went away in this. But is there a rational component in the sense that he stands for so many things that they don't, that their view of the world is so polar opposite? Well, but I mean, we can't let this man prevail because his views on everything from immigration to, you know, defense buildup to budgeting and taxes, et cetera. Well, I can see that as a rationale for opposing him in an election. And of course, in an election, there's always an, sure. a candidate. Um, but I, I think it's a stretch to say he must be removed from office. Yeah, okay. And remember, there was a Washington Post article. Uh, the headline is the the effort to remove uh, the effort to impeach President Trump has begun, and the Washington Post posted it on the on their website at 12.19 p.m. on January 20th, 2017. In other words, Trump had been president for 19 minutes. Uh, so there was something more than garden variety opposition. 19 minutes, yeah. And then the last question, if Joe Biden wins, and I'm not in any way sure he will, in fact, I don't think he will, but that, that aside, if he wins, and let's say there's a Democrat House and Senate, will the obsession end? Well, that's, well, that's he's good being gone, as Shakespeare says, uh, or will they go after him? Well, if, you know, if Trump won, I mean, I just have no idea what they would do because they've already tried everything. They've tried, yeah. they've tried the constitutionally prescribed remedy for getting rid of a president. That didn't work. They could impeach him again, I guess. But um, Well, it looks like they'll challenge it, though, is, don't you think, if Trump wins? Right. That you, you've heard people, Democrats, say that there's simply no legitimate way for Trump to win. Yeah, yeah. So you're right. They'll challenge it. Now, if Biden wins, the question is, do we snap back to the way things were? Um, I think in the media, you'll probably see that snap back. If you look at the sort of uh, kid glove treatment of Biden, uh, I think that that's the way you'll see him covered. Uh, and we know that the New York Times and other organizations basically changed the way they work to to be more oppositional, to be yeah. more adversarial to Trump, to come out and say he lied about this and he lied about that and in ways that they would never have put it uh, with another president, even if they thought that president was lying. Um, so they changed their standards for Trump, and they might just change him back and forget about it for Biden. Uh, on the other hand, in our politics, yeah, I do think Trump has exposed something, 
uh, and it, it, this is no huge insight, but he he does represent a group of people, uh, working class Americans, uh, who believe that they're a group of elites who are all kind of together to yeah um, to make money for themselves. Um, and those people are out there, and they'll need to be represented. And I do think that whoever the next successful Republican is, uh, it'll be somebody who manages to synthesize uh, a lot of Trump's method uh, message with with an older Republican stance. Very good. Very good. The book is Obsession. The author is Byron York. It's brilliant, uh, as he is, and uh, fascinating, as you can tell, I hope, from this interview. Thank you, Byron. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. It was great. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. And here is John Cribb. We'll be talking about his wonderful new book, Old Abe, here for most of the interview. But I want to ask him, since we are recording here on 9-11-2020, his memories of 9-11-2001. Where were you? What do you remember? What were you doing? What went through your mind then? What are your reflections now? Well, I was living in Arlington uh, then. and uh, Where the Pentagon is. Not far from the Pentagon. And I, re- I had an office in the house. And so when it all started, uh, I can't remember exactly how I, I knew it was going on, but I remember flipping on the TV and seeing those images everybody else did. And then uh, when they said that a plane had hit the Pentagon, I, I remember walking outside and uh, after a while seeing the smoke. Uh, rise above the trees there, uh, of course, was an, just an incredibly sobering sight. And we lived not far from uh, Wilson Boulevard, which is one of the main arteries running in and out of D.C. through Arlington. And it turned into a parking lot, uh, people just trying to get out of D.C. And, uh, of course, I had friends, including you, um, you know, working down near the White House. Uh, as I recall, Power America was just right there. You're right at, right next to the White House. Okay, corner, um, yeah. Yeah, I had to, my, you know, so lots of lots of friends and family down around and in in the White House and on Capitol Hill. My sister was working on Capitol Hill. We had a brand new baby then, and and uh, my wife Kirsten had taken uh, Molly to like a a baby, you know, baby gym class or something ridiculous like that. And uh, I just remember trying to get hold of her, and because I knew it was going to be hard for her to get back to the house because of the traffic, and being worried about that. And you know, oh, we've just forgotten. I think that that the sense of that we all felt under attack. We just all felt like, uh, you know, this attack had come out of nowhere. And if the world was all of a sudden, if not falling apart, you know, the ground was just shifting underneath us. And it was very, it was very, you know, I mean, you remember well how, how, frightening it was and uh, yeah trying to sort out what it meant and whether it'd be more and because there was that crazy craziness of uh one tower then another tower right then you know the pentagon and then the shanksville you know is there more to come yes and um you know people were scrambling to figure it out and remember getting all sorts of reports i remember that just knocked me over like dick cheney had ordered you know jets fighter jets to get ready to shoot down commercial airliners Right. In case, yeah. case there was reason to believe they'd been hijacked. Yeah. Yeah. The I remember. Air Force One wasn't sure. They weren't sure where to go, you know? Right. Be a safe place. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, do you remember? I remember lying in bed for, for nights afterwards. I remember they were flying uh, patrols, military yeah. jets were flying yeah. patrols yeah. all day long and all night long. You heard yeah. the sounds of these jets overhead because we just yeah. didn't know what was coming from where. Yeah, no, it was extraordinary. 
Um, Claude was saying earlier, you know, nothing like this had ever happened before. It's true, but one thing, if you, well, a little bit of history, is that this was predicted by James Madison in the Federalist Papers. He talks about the commercial center of the country being New York and how vulnerable it is to attack from a, for a foreign enemy. Yeah. Precautions must be taken. That was, uh, you know, around 1780s. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was a rich, it was a rich target. Uh, and we entered the, the, the real world of terrorism. And I mean, we'd been in it with the World Trade Center bombing, you know, back earlier, but this was really it. It really was. And I just two more thoughts came into my, my head. Um, well, one is that, uh, you know, several days later, I remember we we're going over the, to the to the Pentagon and seeing that huge gaping hole in the yeah. side of this building was just hard to believe. But the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of flowers and photos and little things that people had brought to put on the lawn there um, in remembrance was really that was overwhelming too to see that. Um, and then the other thought that just flashed in my mind when you were talking about Madison and, and being ready is just as uh, you know. A, in a country where it seems that um, so many of the elites in government and media are talking about, you know, defunding the police, you know, how can you have your eye on this kind of, you know, the ball yeah, when, you're, yeah. when you're talking about that? So. No, bravery of people. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, I, you know, we, I was just watching on the TV, the ceremony in New York and there in Shanksville, hallowed ground. And um, we associate that phrase with uh, the subject of your new book, Old Abe, um, he referred to that idea of hallowed ground or not hallowing this ground. That also was in Pennsylvania, right? Right, at, yeah. At Gettysburg. Um, Old Abe, wonderful, wonderful book. I know I know you well because we're close friends, and I know you've been working on this book. What your wife said, you were working on this book long, three times longer than the Civil War? Yeah, it's embarrassing. I, <laughs> I got the idea for the book in 2006, and uh, – as you know, it's been a long, long slog. And I have to say, I didn't work on, obviously not worked on the book full time since 2006. Uh, so it's been a part-time, part-time labor of love, on and off labor of love. But yeah, yeah, more than three times the length of the Civil War to write this, this darn thing. What inspired you to write it? How well, many books know, are there on Lincoln? Do you have any idea? I'm sure you do. Well, about 10 years ago, somebody counted the Lincoln books and got up to about 15,000. I think he stopped at, uh, at 15,000. Yeah. And that was 10 years ago. So they're more than that now. Um, you know, I don't you're, know. you're entering a crowded field. Yes, I am. But which was one of the dawning things about it, but they're overwhelmingly nonfiction. Um, they're not that many Lincoln novels, especially if you take out vampire hunters and all that stuff. Um, so I wanted, you know, so I, you know, as you know, Bill, I love Lincoln, uh, as you do. Yeah. And he's been a, a hero from history for a long time since I was a, a child, really. And then, you know, working for and with you over the years, just deepened my affection for him. Um, so I wrote it cause I love Lincoln and I want others to know about him and hopefully love him as well and, and learn more about him. And I wanted to, and I chose fiction partly cause there are so many you know, fine nonfiction works out there about him. But I wanted to try to bring him a lot to life and make him a walking, talking, breathing fellow, not just that stiff image we see on the, you know, the penny or the $5 bill. So hopefully that's what I've done. Uh, John, I want I wanted you to talk about this right away because you said, you know, these books on Lincoln, vast majority are nonfiction and yours is fiction. I don't want the audience to then say, oh, it's made up like it's all made up. Um, address that because you went to great pains to 
for example, uh, depict conversations and describe conversations that although you may not know in most cases the exact words, there's reason to believe things like that were said. That is, this is not make-believe. You you can do better than I. Explain when you say it's fiction, the ways in which you believe it's true. Um, Well, that's right. It is historical fiction um, because that's how I want to try to bring them to life. But one reason it took three times the length of the Civil War to write the thing is uh, the research involved. I really wanted to try to give an accurate portrayal of Lincoln. And this book begins in the spring of 1860 when he's nominated. And it just takes him through the last five years of his life. So you're by his side in every chapter and every every scene. You're right with Lincoln as he goes through the uh, presidency of the Civil War. So, um, but I wanted to, everything I depict happened, uh, all the the events. Uh, Occasionally we'll, we'll combine events. All, um, almost all the characters walking on and off the pages are, are real, you know, we're real people like Mary Todd Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant and Frederick Douglass. And, um, occasionally I'll invent a, a minor character to move the story along, but uh, it's, it's real stuff. It's, it's historical fiction with the emphasis on history. Um, and the dialogue, as you say, um, I really mind uh, primary source documents, uh, letters, uh, speeches, articles from the, the period that reported on what people said, drum, what things that Lincoln and others wrote and built that into the dialogue um, to try to get it as close as I could. Now, as you say, I, I filled in the gaps uh, a lot with um, my imagination, you know, the gaps in events and scenery and uh, or scenes and uh, dialogue. And that's what makes it fiction. But um, as I say, I got it. I, I, I strove mightily to get it as accurate as I could. Right. And to do that, you researched, as you said, you also visited a number of Lincoln places. Where did you go? Every place from uh, Sinking Spring Farm in Kentucky, where he was born, uh, to Sinking Spring Farm, Sinking Spring Farm. Uh, that's where the farm where he was uh, born. It was the, you know, of course, he was born in a log cabin in 1809. Now there's a like a marble temple there uh, to him. And there's a there's a log cabin inside the temple, uh, the monument, although it's actually not the cabin that he was born. in. I think when they put it, when they built the monument, they thought it was, but it's not. Uh, so every place from, you know, there to uh, to Fort Theater, Theater, where he was assassinated. So, you know, the, the woods of Indiana, where he grew up, and then, of course, um, Springfield, where he spent most of his adult life, and uh, New Salem, where he spent six years as a young man. Uh, lots of sites to battlefields. I tell you what, my favorite um, Lincoln sites is uh, there in D.C., uh, the President's Cottage. It's a great place. A lot of people hadn't been yeah. there when Washington opens up again. Um, Lincoln Cottage, right? Yes, right. It's out there yeah. by the old soldiers' home, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. It was the yep, old soldiers' home. That's where that was the Camp David of, of its day. And the Lincolns uh, would move there for the summer time. It's about three miles from the White House, and Lincoln would commute into the White House. But it was a little bit, you know, kind of up in the hills, a little bit more could catch the, the breezes of the summer, a little quieter. So, but that's a really great place for, for people who love Lincoln because you can, it's just one of those few places you can literally come into contact with his world because when you go up and down the stairs there, you can put your hand on the, uh, the banister of the stairwell where that he put his hand on and say, yeah, for a Lincoln geek like me, that's a, that's a big deal. You, know, you can touch, touch something that Lincoln touched. Last time I heard about the Lincoln cottage, I was invited there an event that actually never took place, but I was invited to go to the Lincoln cottage and sit there and debate Hillary Clinton on, on politics and, I thought, I just don't know if that's appropriate for the Lincoln Cottage. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll pass on that. We're talking to John Cribb. The book is Old Abe. It's a historical novel, accurate historical novel, if I might say that, about Abraham Lincoln. What years do you cover in the book, Joan? 
um, from May of 1860 uh, through his uh, assassination. And uh, I start in May of 1860 because in that month, the Demo- the uh, sorry, the Republicans of Illinois held a state convention in a uh, temporary uh, convention hall they built with a few sticks of timber and they rented a circus tent for, you know, to have a canvas roof and they called it the wigwam and they crammed in there and they chose Lincoln as the man they would like to see uh, be the Republican nominee. And then one week later, the national convention took place in, in uh, Chicago. So um, that's where I, I pick it up. And then, as I say, I just follow him straight through uh, those last five years of his life, right up to, uh, to his death. We, uh, the, I, I just, I don't want to get off the book old Abe, but there was a, a recent movie about Lincoln. Daniel Day-Lewis played, uh, played the president. Yeah, it Day- was it, was it a good movie? I thought so, but you know, I tell people when they ask me about that, I, I, I would have liked it no matter what, I'm, you know, I'm just such a Lincoln guy. Um, I'll, I'll, I liked it. It was, it was kind of an odd, uh, subject to choose to, to, you know, revolve around, which was the passage of the 13th amendment. You would think, on the face of it, that a movie about passing a piece of legislation would be dreadfully dull, but um, but I I think they did a good job with it. I liked it. It's interesting you say because you love Lincoln so much, you would love the movie. A lot of people would think the other way. You know so much, you'd critique it and take it apart and talk about the inaccuracies. Was it a pretty accurate movie? Yeah, it was. I mean, there were some things that were inaccurate about it, like. Um, Oh, the character who, uh, uh, William Henry Seward is secretary of state. And I can't remember the name of the actor that played him, but he was very dour throughout the yeah. movie and just kind of frowning. But, and, and, and actually in real life, life. Yeah. Yeah. Henry Seward was, was in, in Lincoln where became pretty good friends and had, they shared a love of a good story and joke. And, uh, and so he was, uh, actually a fellow with a good sense of humor. So there were some things like that, but overall I thought, I thought it was, was, uh, they did a great job. Yeah. What did you learn in writing Old Abe? What did you learn about Lincoln um, that you really didn't know before? What were, there, were there any surprises, revelations, uh, or deepening of your understanding in ways that you didn't know? Obviously, you deepened your understanding, but, but did you say, huh, at any point? I didn't know that or I didn't realize that. Well, of course, lots and lots of things, because as I did research. But one, one main thing that I just didn't realize going into it was, he was a man of really deep faith and Lincoln's mm-hmm. you know, exact nature of his faith has been a, a source of uh, debate and con- uh, discussion by scholars over the years. Um, but he was a very uh, spiritual guy. And the longer the war went on, the deeper his faith grew. And of course, if you read the second inaugural address, he, he lays it out, his view that the Civil War was basically uh, God's way of judging and punishing both North and South uh, for uh, the uh, the sin of slavery. And in I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, in effect, that all this horrible bloodshed was his way of cleansing the the, the nation of that sin. Um, and Lincoln uh, called himself a humble instrument in the hands of the Almighty. He really did view himself um, as a, uh, as a as an instrument in God's hands, as as I think he would say we all are. Um, so, uh, I I did not know that going into the, the, you know, into this book that he was a man. So, you know, he probably knew the Bible better, at least as well, but maybe better than, than any president before or since he spent a lot of time with the Bible, with what spare time he had reading it and studying. He quoted it all the time, as you know, uh, he, like, you know, for example, that, that phrase, a house divided against itself cannot stand. That's straight yeah. from the Bible. It's Matthew 12, 25. Um, he's, he's, uh, and he did that again and again. He quoted the Bible. 
Yeah, I remember a professor told us, said Lincoln, you know, read widely and deeply, but basically he was a man of the Bible and Shakespeare. Right. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, those were his two uh, uh, really the wells that he went to again and again and again. Interesting. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, essentially he, he read um, whatever books he could get his hands on when he was a young man. And he really would, you know, it is true. He would walk miles through the Indiana wilderness to, to borrow a book if he could. Um, when he was older, or return, or return a book, right? Yes. Or return a book. That's right. Yeah, That's yeah, honest yeah. Dave would return the book. <laughs> yeah. And you know, that story, that story, according to people who knew him, that the famous story about how he borrowed a, a, a biography of, uh, of, um, George Washington from a neighboring farmer. The farmer's name was Oziah Crawford. Oh, this is the one he wrecked, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah he left it. He, he got it wet. He, he, he slept under the roof in the cabin and he, he, it rained hard overnight and the water came in and ruined the book. And he walked over to Cy Crawford's field and he said, you know, I can't pay for it. I don't have any money, but I can work for it. So it was, uh, the book was worth 75 cents and a day's wage in a cornfield back then was 25 cents a day. So he, he worked three days pulling, pulling fodder in that cornfield to pay for that book. It's a true story. But when, as he got older, um, he really was more of a newspaper reader, and, uh, and of course, as president, he spent a lot, a lot of time reading government reports, you know, big stacks of reports. Even back then, they had government reports and reports from the field, reports from generals. Um, so he became, I think, less of a book reader and more of a newspaper and, and journal. Yeah. Was he, we're talking to John Cribb, the author of Old Abe, which is available um, everywhere, right? Amazon everywhere. Is that yes. correct? Yeah? Yes. Um, was he, as a politician, was he... A, a, a man of integrity and morality and decency, or was he wily and cunning and clever, or was he both? I think he was both. Um, he could be uh, he could be a canny politician when he needed to be. Um, for example, uh, well, there's lots of examples, but you know, there, there was a um, an editorial written during the war uh, by Horace Greeley, who sometimes. Lincoln got along with and sometimes not. He was the editor of the, uh, the New York Tribune. I was a prayer of, tw of, a, of a 20 million, I think it was called. Um, and basically it was uh, chastising Lincoln for uh, the efforts in the war and for not emancipating the, play the slaves. Uh, Lincoln, uh, in a famous response, said, I'll do what I need to do to, to save the Union. If it means freeing all the slaves, I'll free all the slaves. If it means not freeing a, any slaves, I'll, I'll you know, I want. In fact, he'd already written the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, he was being canny. He was, uh, was kind of uh. you know, uh, uh, keeping his uh, cards close to the vest and kind of uh, sending up a trial balloon. Uh, but, he, you know, he was definitely a man of high integrity. Um, you know, he really did deserve the name Honest Abe, which he got. He earned that nickname originally while he was an attorney in Springfield. Um, and of course, when he ran for president, the Republicans really played it up, uh, and during the campaign, but he was, you know, Lincoln was called a lot of things in the Northern press as the war went badly. You know, he was a rube from the prairies and just from the sticks and a buffoon and, um, an incompetent man, uh, just was in over his head. Um, but even though there were people that felt like he was in over his head, I think there was always the sense that he was a good, decent man. Um, even among his critics, at least in the North, I'm not sure about the South, but, but the North. And that was important, I think, because, uh, you know, the sense that there was a good, decent man 
in the White House helped people feel like the cause they were fighting for was a, was a good, decent cause. So I think it was an important part of his presidency. Let me ask you about this. That's a surprise. may come surprise to you, but preface it first. One of my favorite moments is right after the war and he goes to Richmond mm-hmm. and he sees folks and a group of black people uh, come up to him and kneel. Right. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's accurate. Yes. And, and what does he say? He, he tells them, he says, don't kneel, kneel only to, to God. And he says, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a beautiful moment. I mean, it's a beautiful moment. Now, um, there's a statue. I want to get to statues generally here. And the statues are on our mind. Lincoln's been pretty safe from assault so far. Is that right? In our age, in this age of tearing down statues? For the most part, yeah, yeah. I think they've left Lincoln alone, at least for now. There's a statue in Lafayette Park across the White House. You know it, right? Yes. And Lincoln is there, and there is a slave or a freed slave, right? Handcuffs, chains, uh, kneeling, I believe. Yeah, the emancipation right? statue, yeah. Right. Um, it it's... was put up by, apparently it was funded by African-Americans, I, be- right. I believe. Yeah, it went up in the 1870s, and uh, it was the, the, the initial funding was by freed slaves. Uh, later freed on, slaves. some other money came in. But yeah, that's exactly right. The It was uh, free slaves and the... Um, the the man that's kneeling is uh, named Archer Alexander. He's the model for that that kneeling slave it was an actual uh, slave. It's historical in that sense. Um, it's a, you know, and, and it's meant to represent um, the idea that millions uh, of of Americans were subjugated. Uh, but Lincoln, of course, as the emancipator, is is saying you are no longer in chains. Rise up, you're free. And by the no, way, he, he said that he said he told them the same thing in Richmond that when when that that uh-huh. remarkable walk through Richmond that you're talking about, which happened just right after Richmond f- fell, Lincoln was down at City Point, Virginia, just down the uh, James River where the where the um, Union Army had a huge supply depot, and he said, "I want to go to Richmond," and he took about you know a dozen Marines with him and just went up the river and walked into Richmond, and it was just it's an amazing thing to think about, it, um, and. The army was supposed to meet him and they weren't there right when they got there. And so he went walking with the, you know, these dozen soldiers right through the, through the, the town. It was still smoldering uh, from blocks and blocks of uh, fires and um, nobody knew it was coming. And it was obviously a very tense situation. And he, he found the, uh, the, uh, what is known as the white house of the Confederacy and uh, Jefferson Davis's house. And he went, went inside and sat down in his, his chair. But, but on the way, when, when those, uh, that the black people, uh, you know, as you say, they, they, saw him and they, they flocked to him and they, they, some of them were kneeling. He said, rise up. Um, he, he, he told them, he said, you know, you're free. And he said, you'll, uh, don't, you'll always be free and you can trample on the name of slave forever. And that's kind of what that statue is supposed to represent. I think. Now here's the point I'm getting to someone I know very well and you know very well, who is uh, sort of on your side, my side and everything political has said, Here's one statue I would change, not take down, but, and this is through the prism of contemporary life. Mm -hmm. I'd have that slave standing. Right. Shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. Uh, That's an interesting idea. Yeah. Because the representation is, to many eyes, is actually fairly, fairly obvious, superordination and subordination. Right. And uh, it had never occurred to me. 
that um, you could still do justice to that moment and to that emancipation, but you could change you could. the posture. It's a very interesting idea. And, you know, that's one of those statues that if you don't know the history, if you look at it and you don't know the history, it yeah. gives you a very different impression. Yeah. And, of course, people don't know history anymore. <laughs> they, right. don't, they don't know it. So when they look at it, having no idea of the history of it, that it does seem to be to to – to it can strike people as offensive. I understand that you yeah. have this black guy kneeling uh, to this yeah. white guy. So you yeah, know that's it's a, it's a very very interesting idea that uh, if you are going to make a change, maybe just redo the statue. It's not a terrible idea. You want to guess whose idea it is? Uh, let's see. Nobody will be offended if I get it wrong. Will they? No. Um, is Alan Gelza, is it, or is it somebody closer to us? Um, somebody closer to us. Seth? Very, very close. Um, John, John Bennett? Miss, Mrs. Bennett. Mrs. Bennett, it's getting closer. Mrs. Bennett. Because <laughs> she's thinking of her kids, you know, in the Best Friends program, right? Yeah. Have that man standing. Would that be all right, change that statue, have that man standing? She's I thinking should... of starting a fund. It's a great idea. I should actually have uh, guessed that right away because uh, Elaine was always the one with the best eye for the, uh, the images in the uh, children's book of virtues. Remember that's right. No, that's right. That's right. No, let's come back to the book. uh, The wonderful book, uh, old Abe Um, melancholy. Was he guilty? Not guilty. Was he subject to melancholy and and deep, dark, uh, morose uh, moods of, uh, I think he was uh, was moody and did have that melancholy side. He um, was not, I think, clinically depressed, at least during the Civil War. I think there are a couple of times earlier in his life where he may have been clinically depressed. But, you know, he 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 functioned very highly all the way through the war. You know, the guy was a was maybe the best president we've ever had. So he wasn't, you know, he wasn't, it wasn't a case of he was so depressed, he, he you know, couldn't, couldn't do things. But he did have a, um, a melancholy side to him and had, I think, all of his life. And, uh, you know, if you look at his early childhood, it may have come out of that. You know, his mom died when he was about 10 years old. His, uh, his sister, who was very close to, uh-huh. uh, died not, not long after that. Um, but you you also remember lost a that child, right? Well, yeah. Right, too. He lost uh, one child, Eddie, in Springfield, and then they lost Willie in in the White House yeah. with typhoid yeah. fever. And um, you know, he was surrounded by death and destruction for four years. It, it just mounted up around him. The, the first Union officer killed in the war was a a good friend of theirs, and a young man named Elmer Ellsworth was killed right across the Potomac mm-hmm. River in, in Old Town, Alexandria. Short time after that, a very dear friend of theirs, uh, Ned Baker, um, who had been a um, political ally and, and attorney in uh, Illinois, was at that point a senator from Oregon. They'd named their son Eddie after him. He was killed in fighting at Ball's Bluff right up the river at Leesburg. Um, and and it just got worse and worse as you know as time went on. So if he seemed sad sometimes, I think it would have been troubling if he had not seemed sad uh, during during his presidency. Yeah. Well, you know, when you absorb not just the personal catastrophes, yeah, but what he was, he, what was going on while he was president. 
Yeah. I, you know, you got to go to these places to really realize I, I've just been reading more books. I just finished the, the grand biography, the huge grand by who wrote it. I can't remember. It's like 900 pages, very good book, but the brutality of that war and, you know, what went on in the wilderness campaign, you know, just the slaughter of men. For me, it was the moment of deepest appreciation that threw me into melancholy was out at a little basketball tournament from one of my sons. And we got out there early in the morning and I dropped him off and went and got uh, coffee at a McDonald's, your favorite restaurant, and uh, drove, I saw a sign, you know, Antietam and went to the battlefield. I was the only one there. It was very early in the morning. And then read about what, what happened to Antietam. I mean, it was 17,000 men in one day or something like that. Yeah. And face to face, you know, yeah. just, I mean, if you were getting these reports, as Lincoln was, anyone who had any sensibility at all, you know, would be overwhelmed. There's a, there's a book called The Lord by a, a, an Italian Catholic named Gordini, priest, who said, you know, if we countenance, understand, appreciate all of the death and suffering going on around us, it would overwhelm us and we would all die right. from, from its weight. Yeah, Lincoln had to deal with this every day. Yes. And again, he didn't. He didn't think that Southern deaths were any less consequential or important than Northern deaths. That's right. He, he had that no, name. he didn't. He he because he, you know, he throughout his presidency, he he considered the Southerners still fellow Americans. He called them, you know, errant uh, Americans or my dissatisfied countrymen, but they were Americans too yeah. uh, to him. But yeah, you know, and I I, I deal with that in in, in the books some. There's the Lincoln, you know, even though, you know, he wasn't in the field uh, usually, although he was some out on the battlefields, uh, you know, he traveled to him. Um, but especially when Grant took command and they went mm -hmm. to basically total war, they realized it was the only way to win this war. Yeah. And Grant started that drive down through Virginia uh, toward Richmond and Petersburg. Um, and the casualties were so, so awful. You know, Lincoln was the one who was saying to Grant, hold on with the bulldog's grip, you know, keep going. Yeah. And uh, so he struggled with that, that these deaths were yeah. mounting, were piling up. And Lincoln was the man that was, was ordering, you know, the, the, the army to go forward. Um, a, but they, a, they just decided it was the only way to end it. Yeah. yeah. But again, again, to absorb it, to order it and then to absorb it and realize you were the one who gave the order. Yeah. Um, there's that battlefield story. It's trivial, but I, um, about uh, he does go someplace and he's wearing that top hat and yeah. some soldier tells yeah. him, tell, tell yes, the story. Fort Stevens, uh, right up there. And uh, not, not far from the soldier's home that we were talking about. It was one of the ring of forts surrounding Washington and uh, Jubal Early, uh, General Jubal Early had a uh, uh, army, Confederate army that he led into Maryland. And then he turned toward uh, DC and was threatening the, the capital. And uh, Grant had most of the, uh, the uh, Union forces down at Petersburg and down at Richmond. So the, they had this ring of forts, but not a whole lot of people to, to man them. So for a while, there was a question of whether uh, Early was going to get through and into the Capitol and sack the Capitol. So anyway, Lincoln uh, goes out to Fort Stevens to uh, not only to watch the battle, but just to be there. He wanted to, you know, he wanted to show the colors. 
and uh, he's standing up on the ramparts, and it really was, uh, it's, just, it's just the kind of thing that would never happen. It's kind of like him going into Richmond, right after Richmond fell, which just would never happen today. He's just standing out there, and he's the only, he's the only American president to be under enemy fire while president. Um, but interesting, anyway, just, interesting. Yeah, he, so he's standing up on the ramparts uh, in the middle of his battle with that big hat on and, and just making a target of himself, and, and, and one of the uh, captain yells at him, get down, you fool, or maybe get down, you damn fool, something like that. And uh, according to some sources, it was uh, uh, the future justice, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so Lincoln does get down. He realizes he's making a target of himself. And so he's on a rampart. And how tall is he? Six, four plus the hat. Yeah. Six, four. Uh, remarkable. I mean, not many people six, four in his day, right? No, not back then. Yeah. 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 That's an amazing story. John, um, the legacy today of Lincoln, um, what do, do you have a sense of what our children learn about Lincoln? Uh, is, is, is the history of Lincoln being revised? Is there a lot of revisionist history on Lincoln? Uh, can we expect at some point if this craziness continues that people will want to take his statue down? Well, maybe. Um, I, I think so far, uh, from what I can tell and the experience with my kids, so far as maybe not revisionist as far as Lincoln himself goes, just as, but not, as, as not as much attention paid uh, to him as is true of so much American history. Yeah. Just not teaching yeah. American history. So That's I don't for think, sure. I don't think, I'm worried that Lincoln does not loom quite as large for the upcoming generation as it did for, you know, previous generations were ever, you know, I, mem I memorized the Gettysburg Address when I was in the fourth grade. Everybody mm -hmm. in our class had to memorize it. And I think for a long time uh, in this country, lots and lots of kids did memorize the Gettysburg Address. Um, I don't know that that's happening. Anymore. No, it isn't. They're not memorizing anything. <laughs> because there was this whole attack on memorization, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. When you so, and I worked together at education department, I defended right. it. Right. And I, I will say this, you know, this is one of those uh, cases where uh, kind of proof positive that memorization has its effects, because I'm certain that one reason that I loved Lincoln from an early age yeah. um, is that I had to memorize the, the Gettysburg Address in the fourth grade. I know, grade. I know. So, no, I know. I was asked the secretary, why do you... Are you in favor of memorization? This is when the National Education Association, of course, came out against it. Rote learning and memorization. Right. Yeah. And I said, because the only things I remember well are the things I was made to remember, made to yeah. memorize. So, yeah. Um, well, let's talk a little bit more, just a couple minutes about legacy. And, and today we're in the middle of a hot election season. Uh, uh, your op-ed, which we're going to put up a link to, um, and this is this is a way to kind of get sense of John Cribb if you don't want that. How many pages in Old Abe? Three hundred seventy. Good, very modest, very reasonable. It, it did not start a... as you know. It started out to be about three thousand seven hundred or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. I know. <laughs> yeah, well, you and I have written some big books together. Put together yeah. some big books together. Three hundred seventy is manageable, but if you want a taste of crib before you go buy this book, which you should, this op-ed, which we'll put a link up because it's about the sixty-five election, correct? Sixty-four, yes. yes. I'm sorry, the sixty-four election. Yeah, yeah, that happens in four years. Yeah, and <laughs> and 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 what were the odds, and how did it look, and what happened? Well, in that, in that summer, nobody thought Lincoln would be 
uh, reelected. I start off the op-ed op by quoting Horace Greeley, who was the editor of the New York Tribune. He says, Mr. Lincoln is, is beaten already. He cannot be elected. We must have another ticket to save us from utter overthrow. And so the, this is one of his allies. The Republicans were convinced uh, Lincoln could not win. And it was basically because the war had gone badly. And so there was even a, a, a group of, I guess you'd call them never, never Lincolners, held a separate convention in Cleveland, and they nominated John C. Fremont uh, as kind of their own Republican candidate. Um, Great explorer of the West, right? Right, right. Who actually had run for, for president. He was actually yeah. the first, on the first Republican ticket ever. He had run uh, yeah. uh, four years before uh, Lincoln did. And, and uh, so um, at any rate, uh, everybody thought Lincoln was going to lose. Did they have uh, even, polls? Even Lincoln. Did they, no, they, they didn't have polls since the way we do now, but they just, they read the tea leaves and yeah. it, was, it was more just how the, 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 you know what? It was the, uh, politician. It was kind of the political class. That's, that's the way they thought. I don't think the people ever really lost faith with them. I think, I think the, the people always had a, a, a degree of, of trust in Lincoln, but the political class did not. And uh, so going into September, even Lincoln himself said, he told a friend, he said, you think I don't, you think I don't know I'm going to be beaten. I, I do know I'm going to be beaten and badly unless something happens. And then on September 3rd, uh, Sherman wired Washington saying, uh, Atlanta is ours and fairly won. And the fall of Atlanta changed everything. Um, and uh, all of a sudden, Lincoln supporters came out of the woodwork and were yelling, you know, no, no peace without victory. And uh, so that was kind of his October. His October surprise was a September surprise. And uh, he won very handily. Uh, it, was, it was actually a landslide. Uh, he won 212 uh, to to uh, 212 electoral votes to uh, McClellan's 21 electoral votes uh, yeah. on election day. Yeah. Well, the reason I bring this up is I won't put you in a tough place, but one person who hasn't forgotten Lincoln uh, is our current president who brings him up often, uh, right. often in terms of comparison and who did more. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but he remembers Lincoln and cites Lincoln and would love to be, you know, on that uh, pantheon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, is in a tough is in a tough election. Uh, you want to compare and contrast, or do you want to talk about the election? Is this similar to 1865? I was thinking when you said a lot of the people haven't didn't lose faith with Lincoln. Nobody's more faithful now than the Trump supporters. Yeah, yeah. Donald Trump couldn't be mistaken for Abraham Lincoln, right? No, but there are interesting parallels. I mean, you know, to start off. They're both Republicans. Uh, they both. Uh, um, you know, came, were elected uh, to begin with as a complete surprise. Nobody expected Lincoln to take the Republican nomination in 1860. He was a, you know, dark horse, long shot candidate. Um, they both, both when they were elected, uh, faced fierce backlash. Um, of course, we know President Trump about the backlash, but Lincoln, when he was elected, of course, right away, the southern states started going out and people down south were wearing badges and ribbons that said things like resistance to Lincoln is obedience to God. Does it sound familiar? Resistance, right? Yeah. Um, you know, they both, uh, the political, yeah, the political class in DC, um, uh, took a very dim view of Lincoln. They viewed him as a rube and, a, you know, like, you know, as I uh -huh. said, just this hit from the, pr the prairies didn't know what he was doing. Um, it, interestingly, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln was given 
the cold shoulder uh, by the Washington mm-hmm. establishment, just mm-hmm. like Melania Trump. Very interesting. Um, yeah, the press, you know, uh, the, I'm talking about the northern press. A lot of the northern press just, you know, harassed and attacked Lincoln throughout the war, and they called him all kinds of names. Um, the press was even more partisan back then than it is today, I think, if you can believe it or not. So, as a matter of fact, this is how partisan the press was. The, the editor of the New York Times, Henry Raymond, was also the uh, chair of the uh, uh, Republican National Committee. That's, uh, that's how mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. partisan they uh, uh, joined to the hip, the uh, journalists and the politicians were. So, yeah. Well, we have some of that now, but not necessarily Republican. Right. Newspapers and the media joined to the hip of the Democratic Party. Yes. And back then, of course, Republicans were either they were just they call themselves either Republican or Democrat. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it just kind of, you know, so there are some interesting uh Parallels and and including the way you know I think the media uh, has attacked uh, President Trump. There are some parallels there with with Lincoln. Who had it? Who's had it? Who had it worse? Or is having it worse? Trump or Lincoln? Probably Trump. Be it, would be my guess. I, I mean, you're the expert on Lincoln, but I have never seen anything like it in my yeah. memory, in my living memory. You know, I've never yeah. seen anything like it. I think one one difference is that back then. There were Republican and Democratic newspapers, even though some of the Republican newspapers attacked Lincoln. At least, he, he, you know, now there's just not there are not that many. Uh, the, the press is almost uniformly against uh, Donald Trump. Um, so, and Lincoln, like Trump, is another parallel. Is they both uh, kind of devised ways to try to get around the press. Lincoln would make sure that his speeches were printed um, so that people could actually read his words uh, unfiltered. And of course, President Trump uh, is a genius at you know at going around the press and and getting direct his message directly to the people. Lincoln had a Twitter account. Would he have used it? You think? I don't know because he, he might have. He might have, but I think he might have been a little bit more cautious because sometimes, yeah. you know, yeah. Trump, President Trump is a street fighter, and he, you know, he'll he'll shoot yeah. from the hip sometimes. That's just that's who he is. Uh, Lincoln was much more circumspect. You know, he was uh, famously sometimes he when he got frustrated or angry with his generals or anybody, he would write a blistering letter and uh, get it out on paper. And then he would, he would just Tear file it, it away. You know, he'd write oh, never yeah. sent on it. And he'd put it, he'd put it in his desk. It's a way to get it out though, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Way to get it out of your system. Yeah. John Cribb is the author of old Abe. What did I forget? What more would you like to say? Let's talk to this audience about the book and who you buy it for yourself, your kids, your grandkids. What's the reading level as uh, people uh, often ask in this business. Is this a good book for, uh, for Christmas? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'd say so. Um, yeah. Anybody, you know, uh, young adults up, up through, um, through adults, um, it's it's an adult, uh, you know, written for adults, but certainly high school students, even uh, middle school students who are interested in history. I'd say anybody interested in history, anybody interested in Civil War and presidents and uh, what makes great leaders, but mostly also interested in the country and the history of the country. I, you know, I tell people, you understand the American story better if you understand Lincoln's story, because in yeah. so many ways he stands center stage in that story. Yeah. And he embodies so many uh, American ideals. And uh, so, and, and so it, if you read this book, I hope a couple of things readers will take away from it. One is I hope he does come alive uh, for the reader and he becomes a, you know, walking, talking fellow, but also it helps. Uh, I hope it helps readers remember and understand just what a remarkable service he performed for this country because uh, he really was the giant hero in that epic struggle to, you know, save the union, save our country 
um, and uh, defend our founding principles, the principles that make us Americans, and then, of course, free millions of enslaved Americans. That's beautifully said, and I think that's right. I think that's an appreciation that needs to happen. I'll just settle right now, given what's going on in America. I'll just settle for recognition of people, particularly young people, that Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. You know, <laughs> you know, as, as I used to say, you know, as a, a new Republican, I was a Democrat for 25 years and then have been a, a, a Republican now for, what, 30 or so, um, that, um, you know, we don't have that many heroes and we don't have that many really great figures, but we do have the greatest of them all, seems to me. Well, like, yeah, and his character personality is captured in old Abe. Go ahead, John. Well, yeah, and I, I just didn't want us to close without thanking you uh, oh. on many levels. I uh, have told you, and I'll say it again, I, I know this book would never have been written without you because I've learned so much from you over the years, including about Lincoln um, and you. Uh, we're so gracious uh, about the forward uh, in this book, uh, which I so much appreciate, and the uh, wonderful, wonderful um, blurb on the back of the book, which is, I think, from the forward. Um, so uh, I've, I've, I've said, I think I've said in the acknowledgments, and I'll just say it again, I think I've learned more from you than anybody outside of my immediate family uh, in life. Uh, well, well, you're kind. You, so, you're kind. Uh, this, this book is, is largely uh, um, your legacy, too. All right. Enough, enough on me. I, I just want to say something about you. John and I have worked together on a lot of things, like the Book of Virtues, which some of you may have heard of. Uh, John, that was uh, before the internet, right? So you were at the Library of Congress. We get on airplanes with three-foot high stacks of paper yeah. and go through stories. Yeah what to put in, what not. Uh, Aristotle says there are three kinds of friendship. One, uh, friends who uh, give you pleasure, uh, pleasure in their company, uh, laugh, a joke, have a meal. Uh, second, there are friends who are useful to you, helpful to you. And he said, third, there's uh, the most important friendship, uh, friendship of excellence, people who want you to become a better person and around whom you at least try to act like you're a better person. And, um, I got all three with John Cripp, and it has been a wonderful friendship, which I hold very dear. Read this book all day. Buy the book first and then read it. Um, it will have, help the Cripp family. We have uh, one daughter at Furman. Just, uh, we just uh, saw our older daughter, Molly, off to Furman. She's a rising junior. And uh, as soon as we finished uh, this interview, we're loading the car and taking our younger daughter, Sarah, over to Clemson. To uh, She's uh, going to be a freshman at Clemson, she's going to be the first crib to live in Crib Hall. At, there you uh, go. Great yeah. South Carolina. <laughs> and if both teams play football, which team will you follow more closely, Furman or Clemson? Oh, I know you. I love your daughters. So you well, love the both. Southern Conference uh, has already said they're not playing football, so well, Furman so, is out. So you got to go to the Clemson <laughs> game. <an> easy one. <laughs> <laughs> Last year, I had an opportunity to go see Clemson, Florida State at Clemson. Let me you tell really? you, no one does you know tailgating from the college uh, uh, stadiums that I've visited. No one yeah. does tailgating and post game like Clemson. They do it oh, right yeah, down. It's a great scene. So, yeah. yeah, it's a great, great uh, thing. Yeah. But you didn't go. Did you go? Did you go? I did. No, I did. I did. Oh, good. Yeah. Had a yeah. great time. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. I went into fabulous place to, to see. A, oh my a, goodness. A yeah. Program. Nowhere better. And everyone's so nice. I mean, 
Well, part of it is because Clemson's been great the last few years, but they were even nice to the Florida State fans. I mean, they're showing people around. They're passing out hot dogs. and <laughs> They can they afford to be generous <laughs> before they beat you by 42 points. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. My son and I occasionally wager on these games, and so we're looking at this weekend. and It's uh, Clemson-Wake Forest, and I think the line is uh, Clemson minus 43. And John said, should we do it? I said, no. No, big wig plus 43. No, don't do it. They may run up 43 in the first half. Anyway, how convenient. So you don't have to uh, divide your time between your daughter's football teams anyway. Right. But yeah. I know, uh, I know you're, you're a wonderful father and husband as well. Thank you, John. Congratulations on the book. The book is old Abe. The author is John Cripp. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the bill Bennett show. I was talking to Mrs. Bennett just before, and there was a particular poignancy to the event because um, for her, she runs the Best Friends program in D.C. schools, as you know, and around the country. Mm-hmm. And they had a number of the kids, the D.C. kids, and their their character development. They're encouraged to think of uh, virtues and avoid sex and drugs and alcohol and you know, go on the right path. And it's a noble, noble undertaking. And violence and, and bullying right. and stopping right. the violence and dating in high school, because that's a big right. issue too, uh, you know, right. dating violence and domestic abuse. Right. And you do some work with Mrs. Bennett, so yes. for which she blesses you and thanks you. And I hope, and I hope pays you. I was going to say occasionally pays you. I know she always does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I hope I do. Well, we'll yeah. let you guys discuss who compensates better, but that's, oh, that's the thing yeah. that you guys no, have I to know, discuss. I know, I know, I <laughs> know. just got the generous hand. You but both anyway, are very generous, by the way. I'll just anyway, say they had some elementary school children who were on their way to San Diego on 9 11, mm. and they got on a plane. They got on flight 77, mm. one that went into the Pentagon. And these were little kids, sixth graders. This is about to keep me their names. Asa Cotton, Cotton, Rodney Dickens, Bernard Brown Jr. They were on the way to San Diego. They'd won a school national geographic contest and they were to participate. The teachers who sponsored them were there, James Boudinaire, Hilda mm. Taylor, Sarah Young. And um, Mrs. Bennett had a very moving ceremony in memory of those children and remembers them to this day. Um, mm. One of the children, I think it was um, James, a young man, he, he'd never been on an airplane before. Mm. And um, the night before, he couldn't sleep and said he, to his parents he was afraid to get on the airplane. Something terrible would happen. Mm. You know, very normal kind of reaction for a child. And they reassured him he got on the plane, and the rest is history. Anyway, uh, she remembers that uh, those ch- children, and there were many remembrances of it. I, I bring it up because it was a particularly poignant thing for our family, connecting uh, what happened to her work and the death of these children. And also because the particular is the only way to remember the general. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to make an, an incarnation. You have to give to the abstraction. Shakespeare says the local habitation and the name. You have to tell a story of someone. Um, I remember reading about, I think, where was the article? Esquire, I think, called The Falling Man. And it was about the people who were jumping out of the towers, which is one of the most terrifying things you'll ever see. Mm. You know, these guys from Cantor Fitzgerald, you know, big shot firm there in New York, just jumping out of the windows in their suits and wingtips to escape the heat, the burning oil. Um, horrible. Never happened again. By, by the way, it is worth commenting um, as we think about this. Terrorism has gone a little quiet in the United States. It has. It has. Absolutely. I wonder if Donald Trump gets any credit for that. We don't. 
wake up every week or two weeks or months with somebody, you know, saying, you know, uh, Allahu Akbar and shooting 20 people in an office or a bar or restaurant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, more, more credit, more power to him. I imagine we'll hear comments. We'd love comments from our listeners about, uh, about what uh, John Cribb was talking about, about Lincoln, but, but particularly I will be interested in our listeners to hear them talk about comparisons between Lincoln and, <laughs> and Trump. That does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter, and please do, at William J. Bennett. And you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's billbennettpodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. <laughs>